everyone. Well, should we have a go and see how it works? Yes, let's do that because I just started to do that. We just did the intro crash. Nice. We're like professionals now. <laughs> we just, are gonna be great. We we just did an intro crash. That's it. We're professionals now. Hi everyone, welcome back to When the Rainbow Appears. I'm Lisa Jane Lewis with Rubbish Wi-Fi and also joining me with Rubbish Wi-Fi is, of course, Rachel Humphreys. Hi, Rach. Hi. <laughs> Let's go on with um, session four, which is called The Creation Order. So I'm going to just hand straight over to you. And it looks like we start with Genesis 1, but you're not going to read it all, are you? We know where that is. We know that story, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to basically figure everybody knows Genesis 1 because most people do know Genesis 1 and also because it takes like half an hour to read it all. So out loud, that is. It's quite quick to read to yourself, but it takes me ages. So if you don't know Genesis 1, I'm going to strongly suggest that you pause and go and read it. I'm going to presume you know it as we carry on. And you basically just skimmed over the title because you don't know what it means, do you? The creation order? Yeah. Well, it means the order of the created universe doesn't it <laughs> this is basically you know when people say well god created adam and eve not adam and steve right and all of that ridiculousness right and if this is true and why it might be and why it isn't so yeah that makes sense yeah absolutely i did right. didn't know i was supposed to know it and explain it <laughs> no you weren't i was just oh, okay amused by the way you skimmed over it very fast oh, okay. <laughs> anyway <laughs> genesis one which i'm going to assume you've read is a great poem um it's an example of what those who study the ancient world call an archetype myth which i don't get into the whole creation versus evolution thing it's a style of writing that may or may not be describing an absolute historical event depending on what you think that was that doesn't matter for now genesis may be the origin story for all the other archetype myths in the ancient world but what all of them do is they present a world in a time when everything is as it should be and archetypes are really common in any system that tries to classify real life things so, for example, if you take the family of birds, if you imagine like a big circle with all the birds in the world in it, and in the middle of your circle are the archetypal birds. So I don't know what an archetypal bird is for us in the UK, maybe a robin or a pigeon, yeah. a sparrow, something like that. Blue tit. Blue tit, yeah. Well, let's not get into tits. I know what you're like. Um, <laughs> But something kind of vaguely bird-shaped, little spiky beak, little spindly legs that grip onto tree branches, flies around. Um, and then most of the birds in the world are going to roughly fit that archetype, but there's going to be variations in colour or size or diet, depending on their environment. There'd be slightly different birds in America or Africa or Australia or you know other parts of Europe even but they're basically kind of bird-like and then you get some slightly more variate more variation with things like ducks which are a little bit weird but yeah they're birds things like eagles and other predators yeah, again slightly unusual but definitely birds then you get some weirdo like a pelican that you look at its beak and go what on earth was God thinking when God made that but okay yeah fair enough it meets the rules but then you get one like a penguin, which has got all the right parts but can't fly. <laughs> or you get something like an ostrich, which again has got all the right parts but it's not flying, it runs. 
and you get and then okay does where does a bat fit because a bat can fly a bat meets most of the bird rules and everything you try and categorize in nature is like this you've got clear centers and you've got fuzzy edges the things near the center of the, the circle are the archetype they're the classic ones that are really easy to classify and then round the edge of the circle you get these weird examples that sometimes got a foot in both camps and you're not quite sure what whether they're one of these or one of those which is what gave Carl Linnaeus an absolute nightmare when he's trying to work out how to classify all the creatures in the natural world so when God when Genesis says let or God says in Genesis to be precise let the birds fly above the earth is God suggesting that penguins are evil or cursed I mean with ostriches he may have had a valid point and <laughs> got a long association with the devil but seriously God's demonstrated consistently in nature that they have a particular interest and delight in creating creatures that blur the boundaries and frustrate classification or God wouldn't have done it so often or take day and night for example the bible clearly says in verse four that God separated the light from the darkness but can you see where it separates is twilight not a thing anymore or dawn or is it possible that God made not only the extremes of the binary but all of the places in between as well or land and sea similarly again the bible is very clear that God separated them so does that mean it's wrong to go to the beach no. or to a mangrove or a salt marsh and if no. those places are somehow unholy <laughs> exactly why is it that God takes such delight in filling them with some of the most amazing and abundant wildlife is in those in-betweeny places that don't match in the proper categories and that's before we even get to gay giraffes and penguins and transgender fish and hermaphrodite worms and microorganisms that scientists still argue over whether they're even a plant or an animal. Because like archetypes are like the child's eye view of things, if you like, an idealised, oversimplified summary for ease of explaining. But anyone who's paid attention in the real world knows that archetypes are not descriptions of all of reality. Reality is much more complex and interesting. So if you think like of the child archetype view of a house, yeah, you've always got the same view of a house. In most countries in the world, you get the same archetype, even though they don't always exist. Of you know, the square house with four windows and usually two windows and a door actually, and a, and, a, and a roof on the top. And very few of us live in houses that actually look like that. In the same way, if you asked a child to draw a family, they're probably going to draw a mummy and a daddy and a baby because that's the child I simplified view of what families are like. Even though if you take an average class of children there's probably at least half of them who don't have exactly that shape of family. So with the people in the Genesis story, naturally the archetype, the first humans in the story are gonna reflect the most archetypal human experience, a cis male and a cis female who produce children. The question for us is, is this archetype a prescription or a description? Some people think it's a prescription because that's the way it was in Genesis. Everything from that point on should follow that example. Other people take it as a description. Well, this was one family, but that doesn't mean that there isn't going to be variation in all the families that follow, just as there is in everything else in nature. If you take it as a prescription, it suggests that nothing outside the center of the circle could be God's design. But the rest of creation seems to take Genesis as a description, that the archetype will work for the majority perfectly well, but with God's creativity refusing to be limited to the center of the circle, with some of the most creative and miraculous work happening on the margins. If it's a prescription then, we'd expect to see the proof of the pudding throughout the rest of scripture. Shall we see how that worked out? Does the Bible follow its own prescription that a family should be a cis man and a cis woman having babies? This is the fun bit.
So, should we have a look? We have Abraham with his wife and her slave Hagar, who ends up becoming Abraham's sex slave. This doesn't end up well when Abraham then abandons Hagar and his child Ishmael in the desert when a better option comes along. But God doesn't abandon Hagar, and she's the first person in scripture to name God. You've got Jacob with his two wives and three sex slaves and see the rivalry of bitterness and resentment in their family. But how God works in that through Joseph to save not only them, but all of Egypt from starvation. You've got David with his many, many wives and concubines and see the mess he gets himself into, especially when he murders Bathsheba's husband. So his rape affair will go unnoticed. But God sends him Nathan the prophet and brings him back to repentance and even chooses Bathsheba's son Solomon as the next king. Even the classic story of love story of scripture, the Song of Songs, where a man and a woman are passionately expressing their love for each other. Sorry, evangelicals, not even married. Also, Adam and Eve, not technically married. Russ tradition suggests Adam acquired another wife later on. And in a world where rapists are obliged to marry their victims and widows to marry their dead husband's brothers to ensure their security, God uses women time and time again as agents to change the course of history, even as they're forced to use their sexuality to survive. You've got Rahab and Ruth and Vashti and Esther, all found God with them, even in their oppression. Because there's no point in scripture where the shape of somebody's family seems to affect God's ability or desire to work in their situation for good. God really doesn't seem to mind what shape their family is. What's clear is that God does mind how we treat the people we live with and the quality of our relationships. Care of the vulnerable is a major theme of the prophets. And sometimes when they're talking about adultery, it's hard to know where they mean spiritually and where they mean betraying a literal family, because often the two go hand in hand. So my favourite question here is, can you think of a biblical marriage in the Bible? I mean, the John Piper biblical marriage of, you know, cis man, cis woman and kids. Can you name one? Um, um, Lot and his wife. No, Lot had, Lot had concubines, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I, like, I'm genuinely you see what I mean? to do that. Mary and Joseph. Yeah, Mary and Joseph. Yeah. I think that they're Mary and Joseph. And Although, the other ones. Mary Elizabeth was pregnant before they got married. True, yeah, true that. Um, Elizabeth and Zachariah? Yeah, fair. They, they qualify. But then we don't know what, what bits on the side they had, do we? Because it's just Oh, we never know who's, who's got secret bits on the side. We're just talking about the public bits here. This is right, just what okay. we know about. I mean, Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Ananias and Sapphira, they seem to be fairly, I mean, it's more of a Christian life. Things didn't go very well for them, but they seem <laughs> to have had what we might call a biblical. Yeah. And in the office, probably Isaac and Rebecca. Yeah. But we're struggling. Yeah. We're searching around here. We are. And I think people who talk about biblical marriage as though they assume everybody knows what they mean. I don't know what Bible they're reading. I, do you know what I think? Um, I, I've said this before in, in other situations, but I think a really great example, if you want to understand what biblical marriage probably looked like, the, there is such a wonderful resource out there for people to get their heads around and understand biblical marriage. And it's called Game of Thrones. There we go. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, isn't that, that is, that is women being pawned off for kingdoms and power and, uh, you know, alliances and war and battle and land and, yeah. Yeah. That, Game of Thrones is essentially biblical marriage in a... In and a, the richer you were and the more powerful you were, the more 
you bought into that vision. To be fair, if you were penniless living in a village somewhere, people probably didn't care who you got married to. And there was probably better chance of actually being able to marry somebody you loved. But, you know, it it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was a norm. It certainly couldn't be an expectation. Mm. And I think, you know, anybody who suggests that that is God's model for marriage should suggest that to their kids and see how their kids react. They may then elope and run away. So possibly not the best plan. It's a fair point. Anyway, that isn't generally what people mean when they talk about biblical marriage, because they obviously aren't basing it on very many biblical marriages. Um, if we work with the programme for a minute, you say, what do you mean by biblical marriage? And you get an answer, something like, well, you know, men and women have naturally different roles and life just works best when everyone does what they're naturally gifted at. That's why a same-sex marriage just isn't the real thing, because you need that difference, that complementarity to make it work properly. And that's where they bring in Genesis 2. So let's have a quick look at Genesis 2. So again, the phrase gender complementarity works a little bit like the phrase gay lifestyle. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, where people seem to agree with each other because they use the same words, but it's quite hard to define what they actually mean. And there's several ways people interpret this. Um, The first definition of gender complementarity is is the male headship thing, the hierarchy thing. Um, Those people argue that Genesis 2 says the woman was taken out of the man to help him. So that means the man is superior because obviously a helper is like a servant or something. Um, There isn't time to explore fully the issues of gender in scripture here, but very quickly, Genesis 1 says male and female are both made in the image of God. And the word that is used for helper in Hebrew is actually used more to describe the Holy Spirit than it is to describe people. So probably best not to shout too loudly if you think it means inferior, because you might be saying you think you're superior to the Holy Spirit. And I wouldn't go there. Um, In Genesis 3, the idea of men ruling over women is introduced after the fall. And apparently it's it's the only result of the fall that Jesus isn't powerful enough to save us from, if you follow that kind of thinking. Um, If the evidence of so many gifted women leaders and thinkers in all areas of society and faith, including in the Bible itself, isn't enough to convince people that God can gift anyone he wants, regardless of gender, then I don't think probably I'll be any more persuasive. Safe to say that if someone genuinely believes this, then their faith is a very specific type that believes in the value of not changing when further evidence comes along. So they're probably unlikely to change their mind on same-sex marriage or trans issues either without significant divine intervention, which is not to say it won't happen. But I think if you've got someone in this day and age who is still saying that women shouldn't be allowed to lead in any area of society, then that, that, that they have a type of belief that is not going to take on any other evidence that might change that belief in any way for particular reasons that are very important to them. But it's probably not worth wasting your energy on trying to do that changing because it will take something bigger than you to make that happen. Definitely. For others, it's about specific roles that are equal but different. And there's a kind of assumption that, of course, everybody in every country in the world knows what this is and it's the same everywhere. But it really isn't. I mean, as a British woman, I've sat with women farmers in Egypt and had absolutely nothing in common with them. Our experiences in terms of family and work and education or expectation are so different. Aside from childbearing, which is universally done by people with wombs, people's roles in society vary depending far more on your social class than your gender. Rich people have always hired others of a range of genders to cook and clean and wash for them. And family businesses have often required every family member old and strong enough to help join in and make the business work, whether that's in farming or manufacturing or services. And before the Industrial Revolution, that was usually done from the home. 
and sickness and disability and death have always required others in the family to take up the roles of those affected. This whole 1950s like European American stereotype of a stay at home mum while dad goes out to work is a really modern one and has only ever been available to those with the luxury of a very well paid spouse. And the idea that that's how it's been for all of history is, well, it's got to be written by rich men, really, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, funny that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know what your family history is like. Certainly all my grandmothers went out to work. and Well, yeah. just what you have to do to keep the family going, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. My, my grandma used to work as a cleaner and then as a cook. Um, yeah. yeah, that's yeah, exactly what happened. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the idea of being able to, having the luxury of staying at home and just, you know, looking, looking after your house without having to look yeah. after anybody else's house as well. That's, so it's a particular privilege that allows you to have that assumption. Do you know, let me just say that that's, that's really interesting because my, my family, you know, my, my history, I'm Anglo-Indian. So my family history on my like grandma, her side this is women who went out and cooked and cleaned and whatever for other people but on my granddad's side which is the our, our Indian um heritage so they were from that line where they had people who came in and did their washing and their cooking or whatever mm. so I'm a happy combination of both of those things but you're absolutely right the experience of my great-grandmother who was from Gloucestershire is very very different to my great-grandmother who was from Bangalore India so yeah absolutely the expectations of those two women growing up about 100 years ago in our society actually we're in 2021 now aren't we so they would have been adults by then but like their experience would have been so monumentally different that they had nothing in common and in fact when they got together I don't ever remember them really talking and conversing with each other because they'd come from yeah. such different worlds one had come from privileged Anglo-Indian society with servants and you know people who mm. worked for them and the other had been the servant for one of the best she actually was a servant in a Absolutely. big old house yeah and that that was normal yeah <laughs> absolutely and it's always been far more normal to be the servant than to be the one paying them or not paying them depending on your era of history yeah absolutely back to the bible adam and eve are both given the garden to look after they're both given the right to eat of its fruit the whole premise of chapter two is that the animals were too different to adam to be a good helper what he needed was someone similar to him, which isn't to say, you know, complementarity in a relationship is great. Part of what's exciting is being with someone who has different views and skills and reactions. And that probably will end up with partners taking different roles in household maintenance and decision making. Because, yes, complementarians are right that things do work better when partners do what they're naturally gifted at. However, it's generally more helpful to allocate those based on actual talent and experience rather than the shape of your genitals. <laughs> which I don't believe has any direct link to one's use of power tools or capacity to take the bins out. And the most problematic part of this, of course, is when it's used to deny the existence of trans and non-binary people. Any time an idea is used to say an actual human shouldn't exist, you know it's at best incomplete, at worst just plain wrong. This is where trans people are a gift to humanity because their existence provokes the questions that can stop all of us getting trapped in gender expectations that are really just our society's habits. Because otherwise you just kind of go along with the flow, you know what I mean? Like, well, well, everybody else seems to think this should work, so I suppose I should try it and see if it works. And then even if it doesn't, you're kind of stuck with it. And, and what happens if you if you are a single person household, which we both are? Absolutely. I mean, I don't have a bloke to take the bins out for me. And even if I did have a bloke, I'd be more than happy to take the bins out. Exactly. 
and that's I think that you know younger generations are getting better and better at being flexible with this and and recognizing you know the amount of dads who do want to stay home and look after their kids and the amount of women who really don't <laughs> fair point being able to actually make decisions on the basis of what people are good at and enjoy doing rather than because you feel forced into it by some random rule that nobody's ever bothered to write down but everyone just knows exists is it's, it's a lot more free now a third one we talked about the headship thing we talked about the complementarity thing a third one is the belief that marriages that can't procreate make babies are seen to be invalid but this is really interesting if we go back to genesis 2 we see that the primary reason for god to make eve was because it was not good for the man to be alone Remember, this is before the fall. This is before sin. Nothing's gone wrong yet. There's a totally unhindered relationship between the earthling and God, but it was still not good for that human to be alone. And of course, Genesis 1 does do the fill the earth and subdue it line. And for most people, of course, we're back on the archetype. Having children is an expected part of marriage. But Jewish tradition is, I think, unique in the ancient world for not permitting divorce on the grounds of infertility. Nearly every ancient culture you go to, you get married to someone and if you don't have babies in a certain amount of time, it's acceptable to divorce them. Jewish tradition is that you can't. Because it's about companionship and that's the main need of humans, not babies. And furthermore, I've yet to see anyone holding this view refuse to marry an elderly couple for that reason or someone who's infertile for medical reasons. Because we know kind of inside that actually the companionship and the love is the main reason. Which leaves us with the least elegant argument, the plumbing argument. If shape A fits into shape B, they say, then it must be God's design. Apart from the obvious point that shape A can also perfectly well fit into shape C and D, this is precisely found nowhere in scripture. <laughs> is that okay? Do I have to put an explicit rating on for that I one? don't I, think that, you do for that. Filter, really, isn't it? <laughs> no, I, I think that was very, very well explained without going over our explicit um, need to. There we go. See, I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> what you do get in scripture is this statement from Adam about being bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And some people think this is a statement about sex. But if we look at elsewhere in scripture, everywhere else someone says, you are my flesh. They're not talking about sex. They're talking about family. And Laban says it to Jacob. The Israelites say it to David that you're my flesh. You're my family with responsibilities and commitment towards each other which makes one flesh a slightly different thing. Um, we kind of made up all this stuff about mystical unions and soul ties and all this sort of made up stuff that isn't in the Bible anywhere. But when people are married, they have family obligations to each other, especially in the ancient world where divorced women would be highly vulnerable. So we're, we're talking about this whole thing about humans needing companionship, which is seen as far more important than the ability to have babies, although babies are great, and if that happens, that's fine. Similarity is better from companionship than difference. God made a helper who was at least equal, if not superior, to share the work. And that Adam recognised Eve as family, like him, with shared responsibility and one flesh. So the precedent established looks like this archetype is that most people are happiest with other humans, that partners should be similar to them, provide companionship, be able to help as an equal. They may produce and care for children, but an inability to do this does not invalidate their relationship. So if you're taking Genesis 1 and 2 as your archetype of how relationships ought to work, which part of that is violated by same-sex marriages or gender transitions? And where is this in the Bible? I can't see it. No, you can't see it because it's not a thing. It doesn't exist. Yeah, that's it. 
you can you can imagine it in there if you're coming with a preconceived idea that of course Genesis one and two have to justify my point of view, but it doesn't actually say it. So this leaves us in the same place kind of as Romans one that you can look at it and go, well, yeah, but I'm just really not comfortable with that. I want to stick with the tradition because I feel safer with it. And that's absolutely fine. But if you need the space, the space is there. Because you don't have to read into something, something that is not actually said. Can we talk about Jesus? Oh, go on then. I like talking about Jesus. <laughs> Now, the thing that's consistently amazing to me is that Christians can continue to be such rigid complementarians and make an idol of stereotype 1950s family life. when that was the last thing Jesus was about. So like Jesus is the image of the invisible God as a single person. He does not need a partner to complete him in any way. He's a perfect human without being married or having children. So any image of human perfection that requires those things, again, it's just not paying attention. And Jesus models how family can be made of those who share values, not just blood relations, traveling around with his chosen family of aristocrats and fishermen and random misfits and troublemakers. He preaches a kingdom we enter by spiritual rebirth, not by human inheritance. Family literally doesn't count. I mean, there's points in the story where he you know, literally says to his family, go away, you're not what's important at the moment. And he invites us at the Last Supper to take and eat. This is my body, literally my flesh. And in doing so, we become one body, one flesh with each other. It's, like, it's almost like Jesus is deliberately dismantling the traditional family, if anything. The only time Jesus is asked about marriage in Matthew 19, he answers the question he's asked, but then he goes and deliberately makes space for those in non-traditional situations. He, his reference to the three types of eunuchs that are born and made and chosen. Nobody's asked him about that. Why did he say it? Why is he, why is he deliberately brought that into the conversation when nobody asked for it? But it shows his awareness of people who don't fit the nuclear family, but are still loved by God. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Unix thing next time. And then there's a couple of times people talk about uh, marriage as being a, what they call a creation ordinance. So there's, there's two things that are set up in creation as rules that humans are to follow. And people say that marriage is one of those and the Sabbath is another one. And because that they appear later on, um, the marriage doesn't appear in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath appears later in the Ten Commandments. But when people are looking for a time when marriage is instituted as such, that's the only time really that scripture gets close to it. So they say, oh, well, it's, it's a creation thing. God set it up in creation. And that's how, that's, that's where we're told that this is what we need to do. So Jesus is called on a couple of times to comment on the interpretation of marriage and the Sabbath. And every time he does so, he does it in a way that appears to break them because what he's aiming to do is to maximize human well-being and to minimize suffering. Example. So on the Sabbath, there's loads of examples where Jesus heals on the Sabbath and he deliberately heals on the Sabbath, breaking the rule that says he shouldn't work rather than leave somebody in pain. He allows people to eat on the Sabbath, even if they have to pick the stuff themselves, which is technically work rather than going hungry because he's aiming to maximise well-being and minimise suffering. On the in Matthew 19, on marriage, he allows for divorce because people are suffering under the strict rules. He minimizes the suffering and maximizes the well-being. The rules are made for people, not people for the rules. And Paul reflects this in Colossians where he says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things to come, the realities found in Christ. So Jesus' lens for evaluating the impact of these creation ordinances is, sure, keep them if nobody's hurt, but if somebody's hurt, somebody's suffering, break it, it's only a rule. And that's a consistent thread in Jesus' interpretation of that through the Gospels. Which 
is food for thought. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, it's hard to think about occasions where Jesus sort of confirms the archetype. Mm. It's really hard to think, oh, yeah, and this is where Jesus says this is how it should be. Yeah. And what, what you say was right, because he just doesn't. He just doesn't. He just doesn't. He consciously pushes back against it. Yeah, exactly. And he's always challenging the, you know, the the it's it's always the religious leaders he's challenging on this, isn't it? Mm. And there's that whole line about in I can't remember where it's in Matthew somewhere about you who who put loads on people that are too heavy to bear and won't lift a finger to help carry them. <laughs> he's brutal mm. for the people who do that. But it's what so many yeah. of us, and I'm going to say us because I've been that person and I still sometimes am that person, that we have such high expectations of people in terms of what we think they should be doing with their lives and their personal holiness and their walk with God and how they should live and how they should do things. And we can't see that it's breaking them. You know, well, I'll, I'll say one thing. I mean, you know, we, we talked about side B theology a few weeks ago, and I know you've got a thing about it. But I, I really very strongly feel that if you are a church leader, and your church is telling any LGBT people in your congregation that they have to remain single for the rest of their life, what are you doing to support them? Because if, you if you're committed to being a single person for the rest of your life, I mean, we can go through the list. Holidays are more expensive. Housing is more expensive. Food is more expensive. Just, you know, what do you do on weekends? What do you do at Christmas? What do you do in holidays? All those times when everybody else goes back to their families, all those times where you can't get to do things because doing it on your own costs more for you than it does for people who are going with a group of four. You know, how are we as churches, if you're going to hold to that theology and you're totally entitled to, it's a perfectly valid interpretation of scripture, but how are you making sure you are not laying a burden on people that they cannot carry? Absolutely. Now, that is the issue I have with the side B group. It's not that they're, it's not about their theology. If they want to hold that theology, fine that is as you say that is a way of interpreting the bible but holding that theology and abandoning anyone who doesn't fit into it to obscurity Mm. that's where i have the issue with it not with the as a as a way of reading the bible fine in the last year how many people have been in lockdown on their own with no human contact for months only because their church told them they weren't allowed to have a partner yeah you know, that's the point at which you have to really look at yourself and go, okay, this, <laughs> you've not just got to say the thing, you've got to actually follow through and care for the people who you are putting this burden on. A hundred percent. Rant over. <laughs> <laughs> we have the same rant, we just come at it like slightly different. Well, we actually, we've come at that from exactly the same point of view. Yeah, that one we are. So to Paul, Paul follows similar principles, though his language is more inflammatory. We have the whole passage in 1 Corinthians 7 of basically saying that you should really all be celibate, that marriage is a bad thing. It's better not to marry, but better to marry than to burn with lust. And Paul's being pragmatic here. He sees celibacy as being advantageous, as Jesus was obviously going to come again in the next year or two, if not earlier. But what Paul does that is really important here is he recognises that people's needs and desires were going to come out in unhealthy ways if they couldn't be met in healthy ones. And this, I think, is a very important thing for us to think about when we're thinking about the implications of our choices of theology around same-sex relationships. 
I've known too many people who've been in situations where their church leaders have said, you must stay single forever. They want to be part of the church. They love Jesus, but their desires are too much for them. And instead of entering a relationship where they could be loved and cared for by someone who actually has their interests at heart, they end up trying to get their needs and desires met in unhealthy ways, in unsafe ways, by people who are not trustworthy and who don't have their best interests at heart, and great damage comes as a result. So Paul is able to see that for heterosexual people, if needs and desires can't be held within a safe environment, then they're sometimes going to come out in a way that is damaging. It would be really good if we could do that for gay people as well. Was Paul affirming of same-sex marriage? Of course he wasn't. Um, we've already talked about in last week's episode how there wasn't a concept of a marriage of equals between men and women. It was completely impossible to the Roman and Greek imagination. So would he have been able to imagine a, a mutual respectful relationship of the same sex couple? No, of course he couldn't. It wasn't in his culture to do so. But even in this culture where it was impossible to imagine a marriage of equals between a man and a woman, Paul goes an awful long way towards it. If you look at what he says in Ephesians 5, you know, he starts off with this incredibly radical phrase in that culture of submit to one another, not just the woman submits to the man and the man dominates and lords it over her, but both parties need to submit to one another. This is incredibly radical and shows that, you know, although Paul is, of course, a child of his time, he can't escape from the culture that he's born into any more than we can. He's able to see that there's a way forward and that there's a different possibility coming. And he talks in Ephesians about what makes a healthy relationship. And interestingly, he uses the symbol of marriage, um, symbolizing Christ to the church in Ephesians. And some Christians like to use this as a reason why same-sex marriage can't be a thing. They obviously haven't noticed this metaphor requires Jesus to marry a bunch of men. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, this description in Ephesians 5, I'll, I'll read it to you. What makes a healthy relationship? Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, talks about wives submitting to their own husbands as part of this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Cleansing her by washing with water, by, by caring for each other. Um, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So we're talking about um, thinking about the other person's needs, caring for them, looking after their, the, the other person's body as they look after their own body about we've, we've got this thing again about being one flesh, about being family, about taking responsibility for each other's well-being and welfare and looking out for each other and being committed to each other. And well, this is an interesting thing, isn't it? So we're talking about caring for each other, loving each other, feeding each other. There's no mention there of procreation. There's no mention of property. There's no mention, in fact, of anything directly sexual at all. It's almost as if sex isn't the most important thing in a good relationship. But the, the whole point is that there is nothing there that you can't meet in a same-sex relationship. There's nothing explicitly in the Bible that says that that couldn't be a thing. And some different sex marriages that maybe are not treating each other equally, that are maybe oppressing each other, that are maybe being slightly abusive in the way one partner acts towards another just putting a ring on it doesn't make it healthy 
<laughs> there's the, you know, this whole youth group thing, isn't it? It's like we said the other day to me about, you know, there's a lot of young Christian men who just basically get married so they can have sex. Yeah. And a lot of young Christian women who end up getting married to those young Christian men because they didn't know any better at the time. And everyone's like, yay, healthy, holy Christian relationship because they got a ring on it. And there's no thought whatsoever about the immaturity of those people or whether they actually have know each other or have thought about their finances or how they're going to manage kids or whether they want to keep working or even who they're going to be in 10 years time, whether they have shared values enough. It's all like, well, they've got a ring on it, so it's got to be OK. Which is Well, well, quite. We should have words with St. Beyonce about that. <laughs> yeah. St. Beyonce, to be fair, was considerably older when she was making her stand on that particular front fair point <laughs> i mean there's interesting questions you know there's often not easy answers and you know being all laughy jokey or we just love one another and look after one another can be really difficult sometimes when the person or you know any sort of coming out experience where you realize the person you married is not that person anymore and you have to readjust that's not a same you know that's not an lgbt specific thing it happens to lots of us in oh. life but it happens and it's difficult and we have to reassess. How does it work for those people who are in mixed orientation marriages? By that, I mean people who are gay and were told by their pastor, get married and it will fix you and got married to somebody of the opposite sex and it didn't fix them. So you now have a gay person with no attraction to their partner and a partner who probably is very attracted to, to them, but isn't gonna find any fulfillment in it because it doesn't go both ways. And it can be really complicated. You know, you've made that commitment. You've made those promises. Both of you are bitterly unhappy. What are you going to do? Yeah. You see that in, in couples where you have one, one partner transition. So what started out as the archetype, the heterosexual, you know, one woman, one man marriage. And then one of the partners actually is on this journey, mm. transitions, whether you know medically or socially or whatever and that the impact that has on the other person you know needs to be acknowledged and worked through as well because you then end up in a marriage but it's now a marriage that's a same-sex marriage and that's not what you thought you signed up for at the beginning and it doesn't really both ways i know a number yeah. of same-sex no. couples where somebody transitioned and they ended up in a straight looking marriage and they were most disconcerted by this because they didn't look queer anymore yeah it's like, no, oh my god i look normal well, that's horrible i hate it no absolutely <laughs> yeah, I, really think, I think we both know you know we both know the same sort of people in, in both those situations mm. and i but i think it's really 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 important to say that when we look at what Jesus says about community and family and being one flesh and supporting each other, that if we're able to do that as a body of Christ, mm. it doesn't mean the end of any of those relationships because we both know people for whom that has been the story of their relationship, yet yeah. they are together and stronger than ever before. Absolutely. It doesn't mean that something's gone wrong. It just means that something's gone in a different direction than you expected it to. Yeah, and particularly in the context of two people who really did love and fancy each other in the first place. Yeah. I think that all of that can be worked through in a lot of cases. I think it's trickier with the mixed orientation marriages where somebody has never really claimed to fancy the other person in any noticeable way. 
Yes. And then you end up with, you know, three kids and 20 years of marriage and have to decide what to do with yourself. And that is all a lot more complicated. Well, then we're back to our, our discussion about bisexuality and where that actually is, is more real than people think it is. Oh, no, and I'm, I'm not really talking about that. I mean, that's also a thing. Um, don't get me wrong, but I'm talking about the people who have really never loved their partner in that way, oh, okay. and, you know, get 20 years down the line and realise they're never going to. And the kids are leaving home now. So the reason for staying together has gone. And I, th- I know I know of situations where that's been resolved in a lot of different directions. Sometimes people have stayed together out of friendship and they've been happy with that. Sometimes people have got divorced. I mean, there's, there's Jeremy and his, and yeah. his wife, isn't there, who, you know, got know. divorced. And now they've both remarried and are blissfully happy. And it's a wonderful, happy ending for everybody. Well, didn't Jeremy gave her away, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was lovely. Yeah, and they're still very good friends and both yeah. very happy. So, you know, it, 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 it can work out beautifully. But it's the journey there is not easy always. So it's nice to know you can have your rainbow ending sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I think what, you know, I think what I'm, what we're trying to say is that whichever direction it ends up going is, it's, it's not always just the end of the road and that's it. It, it doesn't have to end in a negative way. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's that, it is that Ephesians 5 thing, isn't it? Of seeking yeah. the good of the other person. And, yeah. you know, what would Jesus do in this situation? What is the best thing I can do within my capability to make my partner feel loved and respected and like I'm putting their needs first? And, you know, within that, trying to work it out as best as you can. Yeah, absolutely. And what are the rest of us as the community doing to support them? Absolutely. And knowing that you're not alone in it, you know, that so many people have gone the same road and it is possible to work it out, even though it's difficult. Yeah. Anyway... There we go. Creation ordinances. So creation order according to the Bible. You've got your Genesis 1 archetype. The archetype, if the archetype is a prescription, very, very few biblical families follow it. But this doesn't seem to stop God loving or blessing them. All the rest of creation shows archetypes and variation. And the Genesis relationship is about companionship, not fertility. And the rest of the creation order supports the reality of most creatures reproducing, but some individuals forming same-sex partnerships, often caring for excess offspring. And that's gay giraffes and penguins and all the rest of it. It's really well documented across hundreds of species. And it's, you know, it's pretty normal across the rest of creation. There's no particular reason why humans should be different. Jesus makes an effort to honour variations in Matthew 19. He modelled variation as the complete holy single man. He modelled chosen family instead of blood family, the whole one flesh, one body thing, you know, bringing us all into the family of God. And Jesus consistently interprets creation ordinances to minimise suffering and maximise well-being. Paul thinks marriage is a lesser calling, but he'll allow it to minimise suffering and and maximise well-being. And the New Testament descriptions of good relationships are about love and companionship and care. So is it possible for same-sex couples to have moral relationships and to love each other as Christ loved us? Probably yes. I I would say yes to, unsurprisingly, to (laughs) our three listeners. I think they would assume that I would say yes on that one. Hit us up on Twitter. We're there as at RainbowPodUK. Or if you'd rather drop us an email, you can use when the rainbow appears at gmail.com. That's when the rainbow appears at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Okay, right. Next time. What are we talking about next time?
Uh, we are talking about gender identity next time. I know we've kind of skimmed over it a little bit the last couple of sessions, but we're going to properly focus on it in the next one. Fantastic. Is it, I'm just going to kind of put this out there. So if you are trans, non-binary or cisgendered, there's something in there for everybody, right? I should hope so, yes. Great. Fantastic. Right. Thank you so much. I'm uh, off to take the bins out now. Enjoy. <laughs> See you next time.